0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: Tonight, we are going to be looking at Psalm 58 and Psalm 59. They are similar, and between the two of them, we are once again going to go back and look at a little bit of Davidic history in order to understand the inspiration behind Psalm 59. 57, 58, 59, and 75 are all described as being Al-Tasheth, a mikum of David. Last week we ran into that language. And I told you that technically Al-Tashheth means destroy not. And that tied into last week's background in history of why David would write Psalm 57. But then when you look at the way that it's used in Psalm 58 and 59 it's become less clear that the literal translation of destroy not is necessarily what David is getting at. Uh, You can read lots and lots of commentators, and they will give you lots and lots of opinions, but there simply is no unanimity of thought among Bible translators about what exactly that word means. And some postulate that it might be a reference to an ancient melody, that David wanted utilized as these psalms were read out or sung through. And we talked about the word mictum last week. It might be the type of psalm. Nobody knows for certain. I introduced you last week to the term epigrammic poem. And then we saw that really it wasn't epigrammic. So it might also be an atonement psalm, says some of the translators and Bible commentators. The truth is, nobody knows. So if you know, if you actually know for sure, if you happen to speak very, very ancient Hebrew and you know, please let us know, because the whole rest of the Bible reading world does not know what those words mean. But we know what the content of 58 and 59 is. 59 is going to give us some really useful advice about our faith toward God. And Psalm 58 is going to completely blow up the idea of the age of accountability. For any folks out there who think that there is an age of accountability around 12 or 13 when children suddenly become accountable for their sins That they were not accountable for prior to that birthday. That idea is going to get blown up tonight. So, Psalm 58 is basically just David praying to God that the wicked would be punished. And given what we're going to read at the end of this psalm, historically about what David's going through, we've seen it the last few weeks. David's been on the run for his life, and he's been out of Jerusalem, and he's been running and hiding, and he's been in all kinds of terror situations. And so this prayer to God is that God would justify him and hold his enemies as guilty. So he begins the psalm by speaking directly to his enemies who were apparently very powerful people because he refers to them as L, as God's small G is the way it's translated in the NASB. Do you indeed speak righteousness? O judges, O L O gods? Do you judge uprightly? Oh, sons of men. So now we know he's clearly talking to human beings, sons of men. He is not speaking to any kind of gods or any kind of angelic creatures. He's just simply saying, you judges of the earth, do you speak righteousness? Do you judge uprightly? Then he answers his own question in verse 2. No, in heart, you work unrighteousness on earth. You weigh out the violence of your hands. Verse 3, this is the verse that I said was going to blow up the age of accountability idea. Verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged, apparently estranged from God, from the womb. And these who speak lies go astray from birth. So David said, They're born in that iniquity. They remain in that iniquity. They were born liars. They continue to lie. Anybody who has raised children know that they automatically start lying right from birth. But David says that the wicked, these people that are trying to destroy him, have always been that way. From the moment they were born, there was never any episode of goodness in them. They didn't reach the age of 12 and then become accountable. Rather, David says they are estranged from the womb. And they speak lies and go astray the moment they're born. And then the next couple of verses, he's going to wax poetic to describe how evil they truly are. It's not difficult to understand some of the analogies he's going to lay out here the comparisons that he's going to lay out. They have venom like the venom of a serpent. Okay, so a poisonous snake has poison under his lips. So he is saying these people speaking these lies are speaking poison, they're speaking venom. And not only that, they refuse to listen, they refuse to hear, they refuse to be taught like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the skillful caster of spells. So David has just compared his enemies, those that are out to kill him, to snakes who are venomous, who are deaf, and who cannot be swayed or charmed despite how skillful the person might be who is attempting to convince them of their ways. And so... David says, O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break the fangs of the young lions, O Yahweh. This is just descriptive language, descriptive prose that David is using to say, God, judge these people. Since they use their teeth and their mouths to speak all this venomous, poisonous lie will then shatter their teeth. Don't let them speak anymore. And don't let them bear down on their enemies anymore. Break off the fangs, the teeth of the young lions. Make them toothless. Make them incapable of doing any harm. Let them flow away like water that runs off. And when he aims his arrows, let them be like headless shafts. In other words, when they try to hurt people with their words or even with their physical arrows, have the sharp point fall off. Let it be like shooting pencils at people, which is annoying, but not deadly. When he aims his arrow, let them be as headless shafts. This one's kind of humorous. Verse 8, let them be as a snail which... Melts away as it goes along. I remember as a kid being so fascinated by snails on the sidewalk because they left a trail behind them. And that's what David is describing. He also has noticed snail trails, and he has described it poetically as a snail melting away because as he's going along the path, he's leaving bits of himself behind. And so David says, let that be the way my enemies are. That the further they go, the more they just melt away. And then contrasting that rather amusing idea is the very serious description. Let them be like miscarriages of a woman which never sees the sun. So a miscarriage... A child who is never fully born, fully developed, never sees a day of life, never sees the sun, never knows what it is to be alive. So David is describing God's judgment against his enemies and saying, let them be completely destroyed. Verse 9, he even goes so far as to say, let them burn. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind The green and the burning alike. I don't know if any of you have burn piles in your yard, but every spring I have big burn piles in my yard, and along my fence line I get a lot of thorns. And once I cut down those thorny vines and throw them on the fire, as soon as I light the fire, they're the first thing to burn up. They just crackle and burn very quickly. I think that's what David's getting at here, is he's saying before the burn pots even feel the fire of the thorns, that's how quickly they're going to burn up, well, then God will sweep them away, and they're going to blow away in the wind like a whirlwind, both the green thorns and the burning thorns alike. So he's describing a complete destruction. The righteous will rejoice When he sees the vengeance, apparently the vengeance of God, the righteous will rejoice in God when they see God dole out his righteousness and punish the wicked. And then very descriptively, David says he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. If you think about that image, what he's saying is the upright, the righteous, are still going to be standing as the wicked are destroyed and their blood is flowing He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. And that's David's summation. Everything else in that psalm was leading up to that point. This is David's inspiration for why he is asking God to punish his enemies and punish the wicked. He is also saying, this is to your own glory, God. When you do this, then men on the earth are going to worship you and recognize that there is surely a reward for doing righteousness and that there is indeed a God who judges the evil here on the earth. So not only is it God defending his own word, his own honor, his own character, But then, as a bonus, David's enemies get destroyed. So that's Psalm 58. It's not particularly complicated and it's not particularly long. But before we dive into Psalm 59, we have to go and read the backstory because the backstory is really interesting. So turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel. Because this psalm says at the beginning for the choir director, set to Al-Tasheth, a mictum of David, when Saul sent men, is added by the NASB, when Saul sent men, and they watched the house in order to kill David. We're in 1 Samuel 18. That's where we're going to start. The beginning of chapter 18 tells us about this relationship between Jonathan and David. Jonathan is Saul's son, and he loves David like a brother. And then Saul turns yet again against David, and the go-between is Jonathan, who loves his dad, but who also loves David and realizes that David does not deserve the kind of anger that he is getting from the king. So let's start reading at verse 10. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. That kind of sounds like what we've been reading on Sunday mornings as we have been talking about theodicy, because here is an evil spirit directly from God that God is sending to Saul... The consequence of that evil spirit coming mightily upon the king is that he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David. For the Lord, Yahweh, was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him, removed David, from his presence, and appointed him as his commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and he came in before the people. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about, at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, This is like a soap opera now, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Now, McCall, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. And Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him. He thinks very highly of his own daughter. (laughs) She will become a snare to him. And so that the hand of the Philistines might be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, Is it trivial in your sight? To become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? And the servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. And Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Well, yeah, bring me the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. Saul's intention was not that David would come back the conquering hero and then marry Michal and become his son-in-law. His intention was, I'm going to send him on an impossible task and the Philistines are going to kill him. And that was the ultimate plan. That way Saul's hands would still be clean. Verse 26. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the day had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, yuck, And they gave them in full number. Here, king, here's 200 foreskins from 200 Philistines. And they gave them in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave Michal his daughter for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David, thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was greatly esteemed. Chapter 19, now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants To put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on your guard in the morning and stay in the secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I shall tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hands and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it. And you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. And when there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp with his hand. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear But he slipped away from Saul's presence so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, Tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went out, and he fled and escaped. And Michal took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair on its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me then on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair on its head. So Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this, and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? She's lying. That's not what David said. She loved David. That's why she let him out the window. But in order to save face with her own father, so that her father wouldn't be angry at her, she apparently knew the anger of Saul. So she told the lie. Well, he said, let me go or I'll kill you. Verse 18, now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel in Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went, and they stayed at Naioth. That's the background of Psalm 59. So now turn to Psalm 59. And what you're going to see repeatedly is David calling for God to judge, particularly the nations, the goi. That's obviously a reference here to the Philistines, who he had been fighting and who were trying to kill him as well as Saul trying to kill him. So step into David's shoes for a moment and realize the level of terror and concern that he lived with because he was constantly in danger of his own life. He was in danger at home. He was in danger when he was out among the Goy, the nations. He was in danger when he was out in war killing the Philistines. And for everything that he did and his own sinlessness against the king. The king hated him, wanted him dead, and kept throwing spears at him while he was doing nothing but standing around playing his harp. And so David cries out to God in verse 1, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those Rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine. They run and set themselves against me. Stir yourself up. Arouse yourself to help me. And see, take a look at what's happening to me. None of this is right. None of this is just. Verse 5. And thou, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the goy, all the nations, all the Gentiles. Punish the Gentiles. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in their iniquity, in their sin, in their godlessness. Selah. Think about that. And then he waxes poetic again. In order to describe the enemies that are seeking his life, he says they return at evening and they howl like a dog. They go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth, and swords are in their lips. Notice how frequently David says they have the poison of asps under their tongues. He says so much about their speech, so apparently the things they were saying, like the plans that Saul was making... Where all of these evil plans, all of these sinful plans, David holds them guilty because of the stuff they say. So frequently the Bible speaks about our tongues, our mouths, how we speak, what we say, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so David has heard all their speech where they want to destroy him, and he calls it howling like dogs and just belching forth, and there are swords on their lips. For they say, who cares? They say, who hears it? In other words, they speak without any thought of the fact that God is listening, or that he is aware of everything that they say. I think it would be easy to apply that to the day and age in which we're living still, especially when we're talking about social media. I heard a quote today that I liked, speaking of social media, where it said, never have so many with so little to say said so much to so few. And that's what it is. It's just belching forth noise, just saying arbitrary things because they think, who cares? There's no God up there. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter how much venom I spew. It doesn't matter how angry I get at people. Who hears it? Who cares about it? Verse 8, despite their attitude toward God, you, O Yahweh, you laugh at them, and you do scoff at all the nations, all the goy, all the Gentiles, who think you don't exist, who think you don't hear, who think that you're not a judge, you laugh at them, you scoff at them. And because of his, that is a reference to the nations, the enemies, because of the strength that he has, I will watch for you, God, for God is my stronghold. My God, in his loving kindness, will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly on my foes. Okay, so here's an interesting juxtaposition that earlier I said was a good little bit of practical wisdom when you know the backstory and you see what David has written here. David is trusting utterly and completely in God. God is his fortress, is his stronghold, and it is the loving kindness and the grace of God that is going to both meet David wherever he is, wherever he runs, and God is one day going to cause him to look upon his enemies, to triumph over his enemies. And despite David's complete faith and confidence in God to do all those things, he still climbed out the window, which I think is good practical advice. We trust God, but we also do what is right in front of us, what is the correct thing to do. We don't just sit at home and say, God will deliver me. We get up and go to work so that we can make a paycheck, so that we can buy food. God might rain down manna on you, but not likely. You should probably do what's appropriate. You can sit and trust God all day long, but once in a while you have to discipline your children anyway. You can sit and trust God all day long, but you still go to a doctor. And David still climbed out the window. So I think there's wisdom in knowing the backstory there and knowing That David had complete confidence in God as his deliverer, while at the same time taking advantage of everything that God gave him, like McCall, to deliver him. Should I tell you an old joke? (laughs) Who would dare stop you? So there's a guy. That's how the joke starts. Yeah, so there's a guy. There's a flood. There's a terrible flood. Horrible flood. He ends up up on the roof of his house. And he's up there just praying to God and saying confidently, God will deliver me. God will deliver me. Two guys come by in a boat and say, jump in the boat with us. Let's go. And he says, no, my God will deliver me. The water keeps rising. A little while later, a couple of guys with a raft come by. Come on, before it's too late. He says, no, my God will deliver me. A few minutes later, a helicopter hovers over him. People are yelling at him, come on jump on the ladder, let's go, we got to get you out of here, the water's rising. He says, no, my God will deliver me, and so the water continues to rise, and he drowns. And he gets to heaven, and he says, I thought you were going to deliver me. And God says, I sent a boat, and a raft, and a helicopter. So sometimes God works by very practical means, like climb out the window, So there is no contradiction between doing the next intelligent thing and also having faith in God to care for you as you do it. Does that make sense? Yes. My God in his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. And now interestingly, David says, In the big picture, God, I want you to scatter them. I want you to scatter this nation. I want you to break them down so that they are no longer a nation. But I don't want you to kill them. Don't slay them. Because if you slay them, says verse 11, my people, the Israelites, will forget. And certainly that's been the history of Israel. And David seems to know that's the history of Israel, their entire 40-year wilderness. And then the history of Israel beyond that is that God delivers them and then a generation or two passes, they forget the deliverance of God, they get fat and happy, they go back to their sin and idol worship, God sends enemies on them, they get all whipped up in battle again and then God delivers them again and then that generation remembers it and then they forget again as they live in peace and prosperity and grow fat and happy again. So David here, knowing that that's the history of his people, says, I want to stand and look triumphantly on my foes, but I don't want you to slay them, lest my people forget about them. Instead, scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. So make them so that they're not a mighty nation anymore, so that their very existence stands as a testimony to your power in scattering the enemies of Israel. Let them stand as a testimony to your faithfulness to Israel, because if you wipe them out, slay them, and kill them completely, my people will forget that you're the one who delivered them. So don't slay them, scatter them. Verse 12, on account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride. And on account of curses and lies which they utter, notice that David did not say scatter them because they're out to kill me. He said, scatter them because they lie. Scatter them because of the sin of their mouth, of the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their prideful language on account of their curses and the lies which they utter. Because of the way they talk, God, for that reason, destroy them in wrath. Again, don't kill them. Destroy them as a nation. And do it with wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. That men may know that God rules in Jacob and that they will know that to the very ends of the earth. Selah. So yes, if there is a scattered people who walk around saying, yeah, well, we used to be the Philistines. By the way, have you found a Philistine lately? Have you bumped into one? Up there at Publix doing your shopping, oops, excuse me, it's a Philistine. No, the reason you haven't is because God did scatter them, because he did destroy the nation, though the people group have been engulfed in other people groups, other nations, became parts of other tribes. But they could say that they were once a great nation, demonstrating That indeed God fights for Israel, therefore to the ends of the earth, men will know that there is a God who rules in Jacob. So that was David's prayer, and that is also a big part of what human history looks like. We've mentioned several times here at GCA that you can't find a whole lot of those ancient enemies of Israel. You can't find Babylon anymore. Babylon is a nation and Babylon as a city, and Babylon as a people group. They're now Iraq, they're now Middle Easterners, but they're not Babylonians, they're not Chaldeans. So, where'd they go? Well, God scattered them, because that's what he does. But, has anybody met an Israelite lately? Yeah, we still see Jews, we still see Israelites. Why? Because there is a God in Jacob. Because there is a God who is defending his people despite scattering the Gentile nations over the course of human history. Because God is faithful. And now, at verse 14, he's going to start describing them again. Just like he did before, they return at evening and they howl like a dog And they go around the city howling like dogs. They wander about looking for food. And they growl if they're not satisfied. So he's saying they're just dogs, Gentile dogs. And they act like dogs. They howl like dogs. They go around the city at night like dogs. They search out food and growl if they're not satisfied. They're just dogs. But, verse 16, unlike their behavior, unlike the way that I have described them, but as for me, rather than carousing around the city looking for satisfaction, growling and howling at people, as for me, I will sing, and I will sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. Very interesting phraseology. This is part of the reason that it was important to know the backstory. McCall said to David, If you don't do something tonight, they're going to kill you in the morning. Here David says, I'm going to sing of your loving kindness in the morning. Because David expects that the loving kindness of God is going to preserve him despite all of his enemies who are trying to destroy him. McCall said, You're dead in the morning. He said, I'll be singing to God in the morning. For you have been my stronghold. And you have been my refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my my strength. He calls him his strength. He calls him his refuge. He calls him his stronghold. He's the one with all the loving kindness and preserving David. Oh, my strength. I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. I love the combination of you are my shield, you are my stronghold, and you're all of that because of your loving kindness, because of your grace, because of your goodness to me. David is not saying, I deserve to be protected by you. After all, you made me king. Instead, what he says is, by your loving kindness, by your grace in choosing me, By your grace in deciding that I will be king of Israel. In the fact that you took me out of the sheepfold and are giving me the highest honor in the land. By the fact that you have done all of that, you have become my stronghold. You have become my shield. You have become my strong defense. But you've done all of that by your grace, by your loving kindness, because that's the kind of God you are. Not because we deserve it, but because of the character of the God who is being kind to us. That's still how we live to this very day. The fact that we're alive today, the fact that we've had food today, the fact that we've been blessed today, the fact that we're inside, out of the rain, the fact that we are in our right minds, at least some of us. (laughs) The very fact that God has been good to us all this time has nothing to do with our deserving it. And just like David, he said, you've been my shield, you've been my stronghold, you are my fortress, you are preserving me, not because of me. But because of your loving kindness, because of your character, because you are a loving and a gracious God, and that's the God we serve to this very moment. So I say yet again, thank him and praise him for being the kind of God he is. That's the only reason you're still standing. Questions?
2: Do we, um, as 21st century Christians, not pray in the way David does? Because he seems to pray... Often, frequently, for the downfall and you know, some pretty harsh things on his enemies. Where I I feel like we're kind of timid in meeting that with the world. We'll talk about, but we don't really pray in our prayers, like you know, God destroy our enemies in this particular way.
1: (laughs) I think there's two answers to that. David knew that Israel. He was the king of Israel, or future king of Israel, and he knew for a fact that the Gentile nations were not chosen the way Israel was chosen. And he knew that the Gentile nations were out to destroy Israel. And so I think that becomes his inspiration to pray to God, destroy my enemies, because he knew for sure that he was praying in accord with what God wanted, that God was choosing this nation and taking down other nations So to some degree, he was praying in league with what God had already revealed. However, on the other hand, I do think it's a good demonstration of how we can go to God and pray that he would defend us against our enemies, because we certainly do have enemies in this world. There is certainly a very decided anti-Christian bias, and God is going to protect his church. I think it's completely right for us to go pray that God would protect the church from our enemies. I think that's the essence of the prayer that Jesus gave. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is not being done on earth right now. And so praying to God, you know, okay, come, bring your kingdom, bring Christ back with that two-edged sword out of his mouth, Blood flowing to the bridles of the horses, establish your kingdom so that your will is done here on earth. I think that is prayer that God would fight for us against our enemies. Does that make sense? What do you think?
2: I mean, I think, well, I've always thought about that. I was like, wow, David really is pretty graphic in his <laughs> And But, you know, I also think of Revelation where you've got the, I uh, think it's seven or six, where you've got the. Uh, uh, those standing before the throne, uh, praying and saying, "How long before you hmm. take vengeance and deliver us from yeah. those who dwell on the earth?" And then, you know, there's that.
1: And there's worship in standing heaven prayer, when He does right, it. Right, yeah, right yeah. before
2: God's throne, for Him to take that vengeance. Yeah. And I think it is to some extent wanting to see the enemies punished, but but by doing that, it's also wanting to remove that that which would come against God and that which diminishes him and that which blasphemes against him so that he shines more clearly.
1: Right. And David them. says that too, that they are offending you, God, so right. yeah, defend yourself against their lies and blasphemies against you. Right. And I think that's a fair prayer. Yeah. To pray that God would defend his own righteousness. Yeah,
2: it's
1: okay. I agree. I agree.
0: Does David rejoice when there, I'm sorry? Does David rejoice when that. When there,
1: he said so just a moment ago. He said he.
0: Re, yeah, okay. Yeah. So he
2: really
1: rejoiced when the, he saw evil be taken away. Yeah, evil being destroyed.
2: Consequences for sin.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Because he was on God's side in that. And he hated the things God hated. And he rejoiced in God defending his own honor and holy righteousness. You were going to say,
2: I think there's an additional element there in the New Testament time in that those who are our enemies may not
1: always be our enemies. We never know when God may save them from their lost estate. And we are told, love your enemies. And we are told to pray for those who persecute us. But we also do praise God when He's God and when He defends us.
2: What did they? How
1: did they consider Saul as he was going about from house to house? That he's going to Damascus to arrest Christians, and then what happens to him? Right.
2: I mean, where would Christianity be without the Apostle Paul?
1: Right. That's why it always goes back to worshiping God for being God. He's a sovereign God, and whatever he does, we worship him through it, including defending us against our enemies, and that's why we don't gloat against our enemies when they fall, because we pray for those who persecute us and we do our best to love our enemies. Anything else? One of the harder things God asks us to do. Yeah. To love our no doubt.